1: Here are your host for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Since it's still American Heart Month, I thought it would be appropriate to just to be completely original to talk about the heart. Um, many things heart. We're not sure quite where we're going to go with this, where the conversation will lead, but I think we'll probably start with heart catheterizations where doctors go in in a minimally invasive way and, and try to unblock or clear some of the plaque in your arteries, in your coronary region. So probably talk a little bit about that and quite a few other things. I think that Dr. John Phillips is all about those lifestyle modifications, lifestyle modifications, eat right and walk, walk, walk blah 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 it, it's uh, it gets
3: old it gets old doesn't it Kim? i mean uh, i i had do you think
2: like a broken record
3: i i do i had clinic this morning and uh you know several patients and and they're very forthcoming but several patients had said you know i just uh i'm not exercising and we all have excuses and we all can think of reasons not to do something uh, but one particular gentleman who I really feel for he's had multiple heart attacks he has been suffering with his weight and it's gone to the point now where he has difficulty taking care of himself he's he's so uh, overweight that he needs uh, help moving around he needs help with uh, uh you know kind of day to day uh living and he's you can tell he's he's depressed and he doesn't really know where to go. Uh, And this is a a former like football coach guy that could motivate young men to, to do things on the field, but he can't even, he's having a hard time motivating himself. And I'd love to kind of just get into, have a conversation about that. But to your point, starting the show, who knows where this is going to go. We're going to, we're going to wing this one and it should be fun. (laughs)
2: I think those are the best ones, but why don't we start the show with a little moment of inspiration? (laughs) I
0: love it. Dr. John Phillips, spectacular vascular moment of inspiration.
2: Inspire us.
3: Well, um, I don't know if this is super inspiring, but I found this to be kind of funny. Uh, I was, I was looking for quotes about heart disease and, and there are, you know, a lot of a lot of serious ones uh, about the fact that uh, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of most adults in the Western world, and yada yada yada. But uh, uh, and that's serious, right? And obviously, we need to talk about prevention and risk factor reduction, but. Jay Leno said this, and it must have been in one of his monologues, uh, and I quote him by saying, uh, British scientists say that they have developed a super broccoli that can help fight heart disease. You know, if you want to fight heart disease, why don't you come up with a food that people will actually eat, like a super
2: glazed donut? (laughs) (laughs) I think that is awesome. And it's actually, there is so much truth to that. I'm not even uh, so much. There is a lot of truth to that.
3: Uh, I, there, there certainly is. And for example, <clears throat> okay, Kim, I'm going to put you on the spot. What did you eat today? In fact, I think before we went on the air, you were eating something. Was it heart healthy or wasn't it? It, it
2: was. Okay. So I am obsessed with artichokes. Artichokes are one of the greatest heart healthy Um, vegetables that are out there they're green they're filled with lots and lots of great um, nutrients Mm, but this is the kicker I think the artichoke is just the conduit for the mayonnaise
3: (laughs) it's a vesicle (laughs)
2: <laughs> exactly, um, but we keep artichokes in in the fridge all week long. We cook them up in the beginning. We cut them in half because they can be expensive. So to reduce the cost, we'll cut them in half and we keep them in the fridge. They're available all week. So I think one of the things when it comes to eating heart healthy is to have these types of foods at your fingertips. And I try on Sundays to cook up some of this stuff ahead of time. Uh, so that it's available, I can stick it in the microwave, or I can eat it cold, um, eat it on the go, whatever it might be. I think part of the issue with people eating healthy to get today is literally that we're on the go, that we need things that are readily available. And so packaged processed foods, fast foods are the most convenient.
3: Yeah, they are. And to Jay Leno's point, I mean, yes, you can have, I guess, pieces of broccoli laying around. And if you're so inclined to meal prep, which I think is a great way to plan what you want to eat, but then also have it readily available. So you can get it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but that donut is there, right? You go, boom, you can just eat it. There's boxes of them. They're readily available. Uh, And it it takes time and effort to cook appropriately. Think about recipes that are heart healthy for you. uh, And then, a lot of people don't like to cook. I mean, I like to cook, but uh, a lot of people just would, would rather nuke something or <laughs> go to Wendy's and grab it there.
2: That's true. That's true. Um, but you know what I found is the secret. There are a couple different secrets. And so it's just taking one step at a time, right? Um, if you love a hamburger with a bun, it's really easy to why not substitute that hamburger with a roasted portobello mushroom that has been marinated in some balsamic vinegar and has oregano and basil and whatever you have in your um, spice cabinet. Just pour it all on top, roast it for about 20 minutes, and then stick it on a cauliflower thin. And those are even available in the freezer of your local supermarket. And I think it's just eggs, cauliflower, and water. And it's natural, it's quick, it's easy to eat. I just actually put a little bit of chicken on top of my um, cauliflower thin, and I was able to fold it into a little taco-like thing and and eat it as well. You add Dijon mustard, which is fantastic, a great replacement for um, a lot of the ketchups and mayonnaise and everything else. Dijon mustard is great, and it moistens the bread and moistens that dry chicken I had. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But why is it that...
3: Another, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm entering my, or I'm channeling my inner Jay Leno here, but donuts are so good.
2: Like, oh my why? gosh. The why? dark chocolate glazed <laughs> donuts are so delicious. And and I think
3: that I would never say to somebody, you can never have another donut or you can never have another piece of pizza. But I think if you're able, if you have enough will and and people talk about being a, a disciple of discipline, if you're disciplined enough, you can have a, a, a you can cheat every once in a while and and still be okay but what i always say, you know my kind of mantra is unless you're an elite athlete and you're burning your tank completely empty you can't eat anything because or everything because there's always going to be some left over and you're going to be storing it in some type as some type of reserve fuel that ultimately turns itself into inches around your belly and leads to you know that wonderful unfortunate epidemic that we have to you know obesity
2: It was interesting that one of our um uh, one of the friends in the in the group that um that we work with with has peripheral artery disease and also heart disease. Um he was saying that one of the issues he has is with family and when you have family dinners and things like that, you finish your your plate and then they serve you more and you finish your plate and they serve you more and you're just overeating, overeating, overeating. And you keep eating one because it's good, great, but two because you don't want to hurt people's feelings. And so if they put something on your plate, you just go ahead and, and eat it. Your mom always said, finish every bite on your plate. And he gave us a tip today, which I thought was really interesting and very helpful, that he never wanted to insult his wife and her cooking. And so he started just leaving a little bit on his plate to show that he was full, that he enjoyed the meal, but that he had come to his breaking point and was like, no more. And he, ne- he never had a problem again.
3: Speaking of breaking points, I think we're up on a break right now. So coming up. We'll be continuing our conversation about heart-healthy
0: habits. Stay tuned.
1: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. We are It's American Heart Month, so we're talking about everything heart, wherever this conversation takes us. Dr. John Phillips and I have been inspired by, or I think, inspired by, should I say, or obsessed with um, food and talking about heart healthy habits with eating. Everyone knows they need to be eating better, but even myself, even John, I mean, we all have our vices. I mean, for me, I love mayonnaise. My artichoke is the conduit for mayonnaise. And you know what? I'm going to gross you out. I even dip asparagus in mayonnaise. It's just a little bit. It's a little taste. But it gets me eating my... Heart healthy vegetables, which is really important. Uh, One really helpful guide for you is called Food for Thought, a pad warrior's handbook for eating healthier. You can find it on Amazon. It's through The Way to My Heart, which is our 501c3 organization. It's a fantastic step by step guide to easing your way into heart-healthy habits with eating. It's based on a success story with my own father, captain in the military, Captain Bill, stubborn as they come. God bless my dad. I love him, but he will even admit that he was as resistant to changing his eating habits as anyone else. And, you know, the key with him was easy substitutions. So it was instead of a bowl full of general noodles – we would make zucchini noodles Um, instead of having a meat burger. We would substitute it with a portobello mushroom burger, or we've seen these new kelp burgers, which surprisingly are pretty good. Um, And we also made compromises. And, and John, I think that the, the key is, and you mentioned before the break about, it's all about moderation and, and picking your battles. Right. And for my dad, He refused to give up his one martini each night. So how do we compromise around that? Okay, he's going to change so many other things, but he has to have his martinis. So his registered dietitian said, okay, great. You're going to have your martini at night. You're going to be limited to less than, you know, about two ounces of that over ice. Great, whatever. No argument from my dad. Shaken or stirred. It's shaken, definitely. (laughs) Okay. Um, I'm glad you clarified. <laughs> He's very particular about that with two olives and an onion, I, and you oh, can't. Okay. But I have an odd number of those. Books.
3: I never could get it. I mean, do you, I can't. Not to go off topic here, but I, I just—I'm not a big martini guy. Are you, Gal?
2: I do. I think it's just because I—that's something that my mom and dad and I Ah. actually shared during COVID that I was trying to find ways to create bonding experiences and giving them something to look forward to. And so on the weekends, we would sit down by the fireplace during COVID or out by the pool and we would have our little tiny martini. Now the key with the martini was my dad needed to have a handful of raw cashews, walnuts, Mm. almonds, and the like in order to, as the registered dietitian told him, was to balance out the sugars with protein. He was very happy to do so.
3: You know, I think that's interesting because you draw, um, you know, you're drawing memory, you're drawing connection between food and drink, Mm -hmm. and that makes you feel good. And, And eating makes people feel good. I think the ability to sit down with people that you want to be around with family and friends and, and break bread and share a meal. That is very meaningful. I think those are some of the more meaningful things that we do as human beings, right? I mean, we're going out to dinner. Uh what is a dates often include a dinner. And so that interaction is so special and and unique and, and it and you you want to find foods that you want to obviously do it with people that you enjoy being around, but you also have foods that you like and you're going to a place where they're preparing that food for you it looks really um, appealing you know on the plate so that's maybe something too you could do right if you're struggling with how do you make broccoli look good or how do you take a a beans or legumes and make them look tasty it's exploring those other options being around people that you want to be around and then translating that into eating healthier and still having that connection with whoever it is that you're with. Right.
2: Right. And it, creating those changes as a community, yeah. as a unit are really critical to creating sustainable long-term changes. And that's why also in the food for thought handbook that we've released on Amazon, and if you can't afford it, just go ahead, contact me and I'll make sure to get you one. Um, we'll donate one to you. No problem. But is we have it's a handbook so you can go in and based on all this ideas for substitutions um, heart healthier substitutions for popular items is you can write out your favorite recipe and for example one of my favorite recipes and um, my mom who as you know transitioned this year we still want to keep her spirit alive it's really important to me and so one of her My favorite recipes and my dad's favorite recipes is his lamb stew, her lamb stew and flour and gravies and lots of fatty meat, things like that. Not so good for his heart healthy diet or even with me now knowing I have a family history of that. um, I have to be careful anyway. It's taking the substitutions for what is a substitution with flour? Think about it. Flour is a thickener. What else is a thickener? Arrowroot, xanthan gum, a little bit of this powder, literally a pinch. you put it uh, uh, it in a blender and it thickens right up. You don't need yes. that heavy cup full of flour um, instead. You, you
3: showed of, us that with uh, the Thanksgiving meal show I
1: right?
2: I did, and I do that actually. I keep arrowroot in my closet because my dad is big in gravies. He likes as much sauce. I can put anything underneath the sauce. So it doesn't have to be the noodles. It doesn't have to be, you know, crazy meat. It could be anything. So I could even put a whole plate of vegetables out. And as long as I have some sort of gravy, he is golden. So finding healthier gravies, which yes, during that Thanksgiving meal um, show that we did, I talked about taking unsweetened cashew milk, raw cashews, soaking those raw cashews overnight in some water, heating that up, when you're ready to to cook with some nutritional yeast, some arrowroot, uh, garlic, um, some pepper, a little tiny bit of salt, and then getting it good and heated and then sticking it in a blender, blending it up. And if you, you have a beautiful Alfredo sauce. My dad mm-hmm. can't even tell the difference. And with the nutritional yeast, it tastes completely cheesy.
3: Oh, that's, really that sounds quite tasty. But l- let me ask you this. So we we talk about, eating lean proteins and we want, oftentimes we recommend fish like, you know, uh, the white fish halibut um, and then the oily fishes, tuna salmon uh, are quote good for your heart because they have um, kind of the, the healthy fat, like a lot of that omega-3 fatty acid. But so for your dad, right, who likes that lamb stew, it's red meat and beef and darker meats tend to have a little bit more, saturated fats in them which we we want people to stay away with uh, stay away from you can't obviously substitute or you, i don't think it tastes very good you put a chunk of tuna in in your lamb stew it's probably not going to be very good but you could make a different type of stew that potentially um you know might be as tasty but more healthy healthier for you is is a guy that eats a lot of red meat or used to like your father, is he amendable to something like that? Or would that just be off the table?
2: We try to give him his taste of red and meat once a week. It was once a month, but then his registered dietitian with his blood work, he was getting anemic and she has suggested once a week giving him when it's the size of a card deck, right? Um, some bison burger, which is really lean and mm-hmm. also um, very lean pork, very lean, um, you know, chicken without the skin, you know, things like that. If he's going to have a filet mignon, um, still little piece of filet mignon and then double the vegetables. So he gets his taste of red meat, but he we still get as much uh, of the vegetables as we can inside him. <laughs> as
3: well. that's, that's good. So we've got less than a minute. What uh, what do you want to talk about in the next segment?
2: I think we should get into other options. So when, you know, the heart healthy diet isn't enough, what's next? What do you do? How do you talk to your doctor and what are the options that are available? So stay with us right here on the Heart of Innovation. We'll be right back.
3: Three years ago, my symptoms started with leg pain and leg cramps while walking.
2: Me too, with a tightness in my calves. Well, you know, my doctor thought that my leg cramps were a side effect of the statin he prescribed me.
0: Well, my doctor just brushed them off as another symptom
1: of old age.
2: Mine thought the pain was radiating from my spine. My
1: doctor blamed my neuropathy on diabetes until I got a wound on my foot that just wouldn't heal.
2: Peripheral Artery Disease. If you've been experiencing leg pain, leg cramps, or neuropathy when walking, and your doctor isn't hearing you, we are... We are The Way to My Heart, the largest support network for peripheral artery disease patients. And we want to help you get back on your feet again. Visit our website at thewaytomyheart.org or call our Legsaver hotline, 415-320-7138. Your life and limb could depend on it.
1: Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist, Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. We are having what I think, and I hope Kim would agree,
3: is a pretty low-key and, uh, free flowing conversation about heart disease during February, uh, this month of February, which is heart, heart month. Uh, and we kind of, I think have beaten, no pun intended, uh, eating healthy, um, uh, as much as you can. And, and I think folks understand where we're coming from. But during the break, Kim, you were just asking me about <clears throat> what about that patient who, yes, they're trying to be compliant and they're doing all the right stuff, but are still having some symptoms and are concerned about having potential heart disease. What What's next for them? Um, you know, for me, I see a lot of patients that have uh, already kind of come in to the office who have maybe had a stress test or some type of testing to maybe look for a, a blockage of some sort. But I guess, you know, we could take a step back and just assume that there's a patient that's kind of out there that uh, isn't sure what's going on and, and starting to ask questions to their primary care doctor that, uh, you know, they may have some concerns about having coronary disease and, you know, what are some of the questions that they should ask? Um, You know, I guess we could start with your father, right? I mean, he had some atypical symptoms to some degree and uh, ultimately was found to have some blockages that were opened up with stents, but, uh, there's there's a lot of tests out there there's a lot of misinformation out there and before we started the show too we talked about making sure doctor google doesn't lead you astray and uh trying to you know listen into your your healthcare providers and hopefully they can point you in the right direction for the you know the proper workup regarding your symptoms
2: but one of the problems that we also find is i think that there's still a lot of learning that our primary care physicians need to do and are starting to do because we're all learning as we go. It's the practice of medicine and medicine evolves with new innovation all the time, different learnings, different studies. They're always trying to find out something new, something different, um, you know, something less invasive, right? Um, whether it's diagnostics or whether it's uh, treatment, I think the biggest um, You know, innovative push we're seeing is really at home diagnostics from apps. You know, you have your um, you have the Apple Watch and some of the other the Fitbits and things like that. The wrist devices that are um, able to help you better determine if you have. We had a friend in the group in our network that just discovered she had afib because of her Apple watch. and I see I actually hear that a lot. My dad, for example, just recently um, was struggling with his vo2 and he started experiencing shortness of breath and his watch actually caught it. and so he just went through one of those vo2 tests. Hmm. Um, I don't know if I could describe it. I wasn't there. I was going to ask you about it. He's on a treadmill but they hook him up to all kinds of breathing apparatus as part of this to see if his if he's getting enough oxygen um while he's he's um walking or or whatever.
3: Yeah, I mean that uh, you you look like you're training for to be an astronaut or something the way they've got you hooked up but uh, again it's in kind of in layman's terms they're just trying to assess your kind of oxygen capacity and um functional capacity too and and that Getting getting back to the initial um, lead into this segment, a lot of times what we try to do for patients who are having some symptoms like chest discomfort or shortness of breath, um, you know, the heart gets gets blamed for a lot of stuff, but there are a lot of reasons for for patients to have chest discomfort and shortness of breath. So, kind of my job is to sift through their symptoms and use some clinical diagnostic tools to to rule in or rule out potentially a A blockage in the artery or some other underlying organic problem with their heart that that could be causing these things.
2: I know with my dad that we were tipped off because he had heartburn, supposedly. And when we got to the doctor and the doctor said, yeah, okay, you think it's heartburn? I think it's heartburn, too. I'll get you some Prilosec. And I said, well, wait a minute. What do you think? I mean, should we do an ECG? Should we do further testing? Because he has heart disease in his family. He's 77, 78 years old. So it might be time to have a full workup done. And she said, no, it's not necessary because he has normal cholesterol on his basic lipid panel. And I think that that is a common um, problem that we're seeing, you know, with some of the primary care physicians in diagnosing and misdiagnosing. People say, oh my gosh, I, I had a heart attack, but I had normal cholesterol. Like I didn't even see this coming. And that would have been the same case for my dad if I hadn't pushed and said, hey, wait a minute. And I stopped to educate the doctor that you can have normal cholesterol and be at very high risk of a heart attack because the basic lipid panel looks at the quantity, not necessarily the quality of your cholesterol. And for your LDLs, the so-called bad cholesterol, you can have you have these large, fluffy ones, right? You can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is just what the, the doctor had explained to me. You have these large, fluffy ones, and then you have these small, dense LDL particles, and those are the ones that are are really concerning. And if you have a lot more of those running around your arteries, those are the ones that when you eat the wrong things, you're exposed to the wrong things, that they become oxidized and then they become these little troublemakers and they can get into damaged areas of the vessels and then push the vessel wall out and block blood flow.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think kind of getting back to the the, the primary care doctors, they have a lot on their plate, right? I mean, they're dealing with uh, obviously acute or or you know symptoms that bring a patient into the into their office but also the well wellness checks and make sure they're up to date on their vaccines and and I th- I think they're thin Staff wise, just as, just like we are, and oftentimes are um, requiring or relying on physici- physician extenders to to do primary care for for patients, and and because of that, I think we are seeing in a little bit, at least regionally by me, an influx in consultation for chest pain and and other cardiovascular issues. But um, you know, so again, I, I think. We do the best that we can based on what the patient tells us, what their history is, what their risk factors are, and kind of getting back to the risk factor um, um, kind of conversation. Yes, cholesterol is a risk factor for coronary disease, uh, but not all cholesterol is the same. And a lot of physicians are not ordering really kind of granular testing of cholesterol. I mean, we're lucky enough in our at Ohio Health, where I work, we have... Lipidologists, uh, so physicians that specialize in, in assessing patients' uh, cholesterol, um, n- not only you know the, the the absolute numbers, but also to your point, breaking it down into various particles. And I think that is exciting. When, you know, we talk about innovation here all the time. There are a lot of innovation, or there is a lot of innovation going on regarding those that, that cholesterol. But yes, I, I, it's when I see patients who have had a heart attack in the hospital you know, the first thing that they kind of say is like, well, wait a second, I don't smoke. Um, I'm not a diabetic because, you know, we're talking about risk factors. Yeah. You know, maybe dad had a heart attack when he was in his mid seventies, but technically that doesn't even qualify for quote premature coronary disease. And my cholesterol was normal. You know, how did this happen? Um, And again, a lot of it's genetics. We don't know. Um, We know, we know, I think, uh, a, a reasonable amount of, about folks in their coronary disease, but there's a lot more that we're still trying to learn. And, and uh, I think you just try to digest as much as you can regarding the patient that you're seeing in front of you and order appropriate testing if needed to, to kind of help get to a diagnosis that um, can can maybe lead to making them feel better.
2: And so just in the last minute here, can you just run through some of the tests and we can always continue into the next segment Um some of these important diagnostics and what they are and how a patient is moved through these different de- diagnostics and when to request each one.
3: Yeah. I mean, so when, when I see somebody, um, and, 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 and very common for a primary care physician to order a, a quote stress test for a patient, there are multiple types of stress tests. There are some that just look at the EKG and and we try to get the patient on the treadmill and, and, uh, we'll, kind of get them exercising to a certain level to see how what their EKG looks like. We also can add imaging behind the EKG component of it to look at the heart and assess for blood flow in various regions. We have, I kind of call it the, you know, the the, the Honda version of a stress test and then the Cadillac version and then the, the Mercedes-Benz version. It just kind of depends on what you're thinking uh, as, a, as a physician um, and I always say that the stress testing is about 85% correct. And I guess we got to go to break and we'll continue talking about stress testing when we come back. So hang on with us. What happens if I stop taking my medications? Hi, I'm Dr. John Phillips with this week's medical notepad brought to you by cardiovascular systems incorporated patients advocacy campaign, take a stand against amputation and the Weight of my heart. It's not uncommon that I see a patient in the office who was supposed to be taking a certain medication that has decided to stop it on their own. Oftentimes we're prescribing medications for patients that have peripheral arterial disease, which is plaque buildup, mainly in the leg arteries, that can cause symptoms such as pain when walking and ulcers that can lead to amputation. Having peripheral arterial disease also increases your risk of heart attack and stroke. So when we recommend certain medications to try to reduce that risk, meaning antiplatelets to help uh, keep the blood slippery, so to speak, such as aspirin or clopidogrel, and sometimes anticoagulants are recommended, such as Xeralta or Warfarin or Eliquis, Um, those are typically in patients that have had underlying bleeding uh, complications or clots or with abnormal heart rhythms. Oftentimes, we're recommending statins to lower cholesterol or other medications to reduce the absorption of cholesterol. Finally, we recommend medications to lower blood pressure. If you have diabetes, you're probably on some medication to help control blood sugar. And finally, there's an agent called solastazole that can, uh, at high doses, improve walking distance. So, Number one, we try to have a a healthy conversation with you as a patient as to why these medications are important. But number two, if that medication is prescribed and you've kind of agreed to take it, you should not stop taking that medicine on your own without telling your healthcare provider. There's a lot of information out there, and Dr. Google is helpful to some degree, but don't let Dr. Google be mistaken for your own physician's medical degree. So do not stop taking these medications because you feel better. You probably feel better because they're working. Your cholesterol is probably lower because you're on that medication. And if you stop it, your cholesterol is probably going to get worse. And if you stop them abruptly, you might have side effects uh, that could make things um, more troublesome for you and cause withdrawal. So if you're concerned about the medications you're taking, ask your physician. If you have a question about why I'm on this or why I'm on that, ask your physician. Again, we want you to be the quarterback of your healthcare, and we as medical providers are here to be your quarterback. Over time, your physician might help you uh, with the appropriate medications, stabilize your disease, and with the help of appropriate medications, maybe you can get off some of the, um, the the medications that you're on with adequate exercise and diet. With this week's Medical Notepad. I'm Dr. John Phillips. Remember, the advice and views offered in this series are for educational and informational purposes only. Always check with your own healthcare team for explicit consent to act on any advice or information offered here. If you want to learn more about PAD, go to Stand Against Amputation, that's oneword.com. To get real-time support, go to heart. Thewaytomyheart, oneword.org, thewaytomyheart.org.
1: Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and Interventional Cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We're it's American Heart Month or Heart Month, and we're talking about everything heart, just seeing where the conversation goes. And we're before the break, we were talking about some of the different diagnostics. But there are a lot of diagnostics available, and every doctor might order a different one. How do you, Dr. Phillips, know that you should be satisfied that you are not at risk of a heart attack yourself based on the tests that your doctor has offered you? you? Should you be satisfied if the ECG is clear? Should you be satisfied if the... Um. Can you take a deep breath? If you have the general stress test, as you said, there's a Honda version and a Cadillac version. If you have the Honda version, should you be satisfied at that point? If they say it's clear, you're normal, that you're fine, and you're not at risk.
3: And not to disparage Hondas, um, I used to have one, great car. <laughs> but um, no, so I, 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 I that. the 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 right test depends on, in my opinion. The patient in front of me. So everybody's different. Every clinical um, scenario is a little bit different. But what I, in my mind, and the reason why testing, stress testing, for example, is used, it's because we we have something what we call pretest probability. So if you were to come into my office and said, uh, you know, okay, I'm looking at Kim, and I'm, and I'm, I would never say your age on, on the air, but you know, you're 32 years old and you're having um, a sharp pain that um, starts in your arm and then goes to your elbow when you lie on your side sleeping. And it uh, doesn't occur when you exercise and um, you know, you don't have diabetes, you have no risk factors. Uh, In my mind and no family history in my mind, you're telling me something that is not a heart related pain. Okay. And so even to do a stress test on you wouldn't make me any smarter in the sense that your symptoms are not related to your heart. Now we kind of live in this cover your butt world. And oftentimes we will we'll order uh, or are or, or kind of not forced, but the, the patient gets anxious and we order some type of testing just to kind of assuage their fears. But my pretest probability that you're having a heart issue is is almost zero. However, if I've got a gentleman who's 56 years old, comes in with some exertional discomfort, heaviness, um, maybe has diabetes. Uh, and um, and some other risk factors, then a stress test, in my mind, is going to be helpful in saying, OK, this could be coronary disease and maybe we need to work this up a little bit further. So the type of stress test that, that I like to get is one that not only shows functional capacity of that patient. So they're on the treadmill, they're exercising, we're trying to see what their quote metabolic equivalent are um, and that's a that's a that's an absolute number. The higher the Mets we call them, the more um, functionally active that patient is. And there's actually a link to less cardiovascular events and cancer events. The higher the the Mets, um, but then I also like to get some imaging. Now, truth be told, insurance companies. And rightfully so. I think a lot of these tests are overordered or balking a little bit at some of that, at at adding that imaging component to the, the test. And oftentimes they just want the exercise EKG where... You know, we've got an EKG running while they're exercising, and we're looking at changes on the EKG. And I usually say that these stress tests, for the most part, are about 80 to 85% accurate. So there's a 15 to 20% chance that they might see something that isn't there, or there's a 15 to 20% chance that, that the stress test might miss something. Um, And so, again, you're just kind of using your clinical judgment based on the patient in front of you, what kind of symptoms they have, what kind of risk factors they have to to guide you to help them.
2: And so, at what point, once you determine, okay, there is something there, how do you know as a patient, I need what's called a heart cath, where they go into the groin or they go into the, the wrist is is usually where they go now more often than not with wires and balloons and such to go ahead and see if they can clear some of the blockage or wherever a blockage might be. But it, it's not always necessary. We have a patient who has a 100% blockage in, right, in his right coronary and they said, nope, you're fine. Don't worry about it. We're just going to put you on cardio rehab and you're not at risk of a heart attack.
3: Yeah so there's it's important to kind of differentiate between the the patient and what how they're presenting. If somebody's in the hospital and they've had chest pain that occurs at rest or uh, abnormal blood work to suggest that they may have had some um, a heart attack or myocardial infarction, that patient is in a different category, and and they need f- a further workup. Um, patients who have stable symptoms, meaning exertional discomfort or discomfort that comes on with stressful situations that's relieved with medications, who have an abnormal stress test, often will get. A heart catheterization Uh, now the stress tests are usually kind of quantified in the sense that low risk intermediate risk you know you know high risk based on kind of what they see on the imaging study but if you get a heart catheterization and you have a blockage with those stable symptoms there's a lot of data that says number one fixing that blockage with a stent is not going to make you live longer. There's no mortality benefit in having a stent in this situation. There's no mortality benefit in um, having, or excuse me, there's there's no reduction in, in myocardial infarction or heart attacking in having a stent in this situation. What stenting does is it relieves symptoms better than medication, and that's been proven. So, to your patient's point, who has a, a blockage of an artery. Hundred percent. They've already made what we call collaterals or bypasses. We talk about those collaterals in the legs, but the, the heart does it as well. And their symptoms are probably stable, and and you can treat treat those patients medically, um, often with very good results. We've got great medications now. However, patients who have stable symptoms but they're kind of getting refractory to the medications and the angina is becoming a little bit more lifestyle limiting, then. You do the catheterization, if you see a blockage, that makes sense to put a stent in. The stent will relieve those symptoms and it will also fix that defect that's that's found on the stress test, which is what got them that catheterization in the first place.
2: I'm coming up right here on The Heart of Innovation. We'll have our final thought. It's American Heart so stay with us.
1: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hey, everyone, welcome back to the show. These are our final thoughts about American Heart Month. And we've been talking the entire show about creating some heart healthy eating habits. We know it's difficult, but simple changes that you can make along the way. Um, just easy substitutions, making the compromises you need. Doesn't mean that you have to completely eliminate everything that you love, but, you know, making, doing a little give and take is really important. Uh, secondarily, we focused on diagnostics, the importance of the right diagnostic. What are some of the most impactful diagnostics for helping a doctor such as uh, John end up determining whether or not someone is at risk of a heart attack? And then finally, he was talking as we headed into this final break about some of the treatment options and deciding as a physician, do we treat or do we not treat? And John, that was a big consideration for my dad and I in before his last heart cat that he had, where one doctor said... I don't think your symptoms are enough to dictate any sort of heart path at all, even though his right coronary artery was 95% blocked. He had a long calcified 80% um, area of stenosis in his LAD, the Widowmaker, and that doctor said you would be dead in in the next three months based on your 8% growth in plaque over the past year. It's very confusing because some doctors will say mm, treat, others will say medication's enough. How do you, the patient, feel good about the direction that you're headed—treatment or you know in a in an interventional treatment, surgical treatment, or just medicine?
3: Uh, again, it's a it's a individual decision. Every physician's a, a little bit different. A lot of times, I, I try to be a coach to the patient and then the patient is the quarterback of their care and then they help kind of dictate uh, then and, and I want them to be to participate in their care. I for example, I mean if if you're if I was seeing your dad and and he was telling me a story of of progressive progression of his symptoms, that usually kind of means that hey maybe something is a little bit more uh, urgent, uh, as opposed to someone who's had some kind of chronic stable symptoms for a while. Uh, I'm I'm very this is just me personally, but I'm very quick to assess somebody's coronary arteries based on symptoms. But I'm I try to be conservative when it comes to intervention. Again, in that stable situation, totally different if someone's in the hospital with an acute coronary syndrome and is having um, signs of having a, a heart attack. But there's a lot of data out there that supports to medical management in these patients. However, stenting really works well in in stable situations to help relieve their symptoms. Um, and, and there's a growing body of evidence uh, that um, stenting using um Little stress test wires and um, uh, intravascular ultrasound really improves improves outcomes as well. And so I think we're all getting smarter about who we put stents in or don't put stents in. But you just you have to have that conversation with the patient because they are, uh, to your point, oftentimes pretty anxious about what's going on and feel like the kind of sort of damocles is hanging over their head and that there's this impending doom. I remember there was and I'm going to blank on his name, but it was probably 15 years ago a famous um it was Tim Meadows or not Tim Meadows. He was a new uh, uh, he was on NBC and he died of a heart attack and he had just had a stress test like The week before and everyone like well how can that be and and part of the issue is patients can have an acute coronary syndrome with a blockage that is like 60 percent that you know wouldn't have been probably picked up on a stress test and we would treat it medically anyway we just don't know enough about some of these narrowings and, and whether or not it's a vulnerable plaque and could rupture and couldn't and that's why again kind of going full circle being aggressive with reducing your risk for developing heart disease, being aggressive with exercising on a daily basis, getting your heart rate up, um, watching what you eat is 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 really really
0: important.
2: And I think that your point that it's not just about you could be more at risk of a heart attack if you have a 40, 50, 60 percent blockage than even if you have a 100 percent blockage because that plaque rupture. And I think that that's where you're talking about um, the medicines helping to create stability in that plaque.
3: Yeah. yeah. And, and again, it's it's. um I wish, I wish we could, people ask me like, Hey, is there any way we can erase this plaque in my arteries? No. I mean, there's some evidence maybe to suggest that some of the new uh, medications for cholesterol kind of stabilize it and may show a little, little bit of regression, but they've done autopsies on 18 year old Vietnam vets and and looking at their coronary arteries and and they already have what we call streaking or, or development of, of plaque development, plaque development in their arteries at 18. And I think that's just part of the society that that we live in.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Phillips. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is an ongoing conversation. So much more to come. We practice medicine. It's evolving as we go. Go to theheartofinnovation.org to stay on top of what's new and what's next.
1: Have a great day. Don't forget to save the piggies. You've been listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
3: This show is distributed by the Innovators Network. For more information and other great shows and content,
0: visit theinnovators.network.